0: He's a libertarian in chief This is the libertarian chief chat Just a libertarian Chief chat With the
1: chief Oh hey, I'm Kevin, I'm here too Alright, welcome to Chief Chats with Kevin Hobby and Todd Hagopian I'm Kevin Hobby
2: And I'm Todd Hagopian And our guest today needs no introduction We have Larry Sharp with us Larry, you want to say a quick hello?
0: How are you guys? Thank you so much for having me
2: No problem. Larry was actually one of the very first people that I talked to in the Liberty Movement. um, And I'm extremely excited to have him on my show. Uh, I've been on his show one time and it was a fabulous experience. Uh, Larry, what I thought we'd start with, because I don't know the answer to this, a lot of people are familiar with you starting in 2016 on because you've been such a strong face of the party since your first BP run. Can you talk a little bit about your path to liberty before 2016 and what brought you to that point?
0: Well, the the funny part about this is I didn't come to the libertarian ideals or movement at all through what most people do. Most people come through either politics or philosophy, right? usually one of those two. Um, I came here through business. Um, One, I spent most of my time in the early 2000s running my business. For those of you who don't know, I'm a consultant. I've been one since 2004, so about 16 years. So I was teased and say, I haven't had a job in 16 years, don't want one. But uh, so uh, I was really a consultant, a teacher. I was a trainer, a coach. And one of the people who I read was an author named Robert Ringer. Some of you may not know that, but he wrote several books, To Be or Not to Be Intimidated, uh, Looking Out for Number One, um, Nothing Happens Until Someone Moves. And He's a big N. Rander. He's a big objectivist. I'm not really an objectivist, but he is, and he's the one who kind of said, "Look, you should be looking at you know things like Atlas Shrugged and things like that." And that was kind of my first foray into anything close to libertarian. And that was probably two thousand seven, eight net areas. My guess in that area, I started doing those, maybe six even. So that's when I started to think about just the ideas of libertarianism. But I didn't know it was libertarianism. I thought it was Robert Ringerism, is what I thought it was. Now, politically, I was raised as a kid in the Bronx as, I don't know, Democrats, good Republicans, bad because my parents were Democrats, but I didn't really care either way. Then I joined the Marine Corps at 17. And when I joined the Marine Corps, for those of you who don't know, the Marine Corps is a very conservative branch of the service. And it was the 80s when I joined. My first commander in chief was Ronald Reagan. So I really became much more, I thought, I think leaned more towards Republican as a teenager. And then I kind of fell off the wagon, if that makes any sense. I voted for George H.W. Bush, the first time I could vote. I was old enough to vote in 88. I just missed 84. I was too young. And so my first vote was for George H.W. Bush. But I didn't like Bush because I didn't think he was aggressive enough in war. I didn't like it. I know it sounds crazy, but I was a Marine and I didn't think he was aggressive enough. And so I voted for Clinton thinking that Clinton was going to change things. He's a, a young guy. He's going to change things. And then Clinton was terrible. So I became very much disenchanted with politics. And I was like, Perot's going to win and change the world. That didn't happen. Then I was like, Nader's the guy because you know Nader won't win now, but Nader later. I still remember the slogan. So that's what I was. But I wasn't very politically active. I basically voted from overseas every two years via a mail-in ballot because I was overseas. And when I came back, I was kind of disenchanted. So I was just kind of voting for Nader till 2000. 2004. I voted for Nader again. So I voted pro pro Nader Nader, and then um, I'm sorry, pro Nader Nader, and then as I was completely disenchanted with with everything, Obama came out. I thought, okay, Obama, that's the guy. He's he's the real deal. He'll he'll change. He'll save us. He'll change everything. It's hope and change. And then two years into the Obama, I was like, okay, this is this is the end. Don't, why bother? I wasn't even going to vote anymore. I was so disappointed. In fact, I felt the most betrayed by Obama than all the rest. The rest of them are just disappointed. Obama actually felt betrayed by. And I really was like, that's it. It's over. But then I heard um, Gary Johnson speak in 2012. And that stuff kind of connected with what I would learned from Robert Ringer. And I was like, oh, this is kind of making sense. Who are these guys? Librarians? Oh, libertarians. Oh, Oh, okay, okay, okay. (laughs) <laughs> um, and then I, then I decided maybe this is the right answer, but I'd never been a member of a political party ever. I'd never registered as I was always registered, nothing or, or independent. And then I actually went and I met some libertarians and I became a member of the party. I joined the local party, I think in Queens, of Manhattan, probably 2012, 2013. Um, I tried my best to help out, um, Gary Johnson, in New York. It didn't work very well. Um, then in 20, probably 14, I think I joined the state party because that's when I helped our gubernatorial candidate cross the state. I was uh, supporting him. I was his driver, his body man. Um, and I did debate prep for him when he did debates in, in Buffalo. And then I wrote checks like down to the uh, national, I joined the national, became a lifetime member of the national. Um, and then I decided I was going to run for the VP slot in 2016. And that's kind of how I got involved. Uh, that was my first try i was part of the party for four years before i tried to run for anything and then i ran in, uh just for the vp and i don't really call that a run people say you know you run you know for president or vice president in the libertarian party that's not a run that's not a campaign that's basically four weeks of me spending my own money trying to convince you know 500 people to vote for me that's that's not running a campaign uh that's that's what i did in 2016. i dropped like five grand of my own money trying to become uh, a Johnson sharp ticket versus a Johnson well ticket. I lost by 31 votes. Not that I'm counting. I'm not counting, Todd. You're counting. I'm not counting. Um, so <laughs> doesn't matter. Who cares? 31 votes. I'm, who cares? But so I lost by 31 votes and then I decided I'm going to support Gary Johnson. So I supported Gary Johnson through the 2016 campaign. And I decided after that campaign was over, uh, someone had to step up and do a big campaign in 2018. That was me. I did the gubernatorial campaign in 2018. I raised half a million dollars, um, built a big campaign, and got disappointing results uh, for what I expected, but overall pretty good. I ran against Trump, not not meaning, not knowing I was running against Trump because Cuomo was my my opponent was just calling everybody Trump. So tr- so Trump was part of my campaign, even though I wasn't a Republican. I ran as a Libertarian. Uh, so I I ran there, and I got six times the votes from the last guy who ran and the highest vote total ever received by libertarian in new york state even more than gary johnson got on libertarian line in 2016 um and i got ballot access for my state so it was a loss um but relatively it was a win and then my run for vp in 2020 was not really a run for vp it was again three weeks of doing zoom calls uh trying to get people to believe that uh Judge Jim Gray was the best answer. That's not what really that campaign. Yeah, and I think a couple interesting things out of that. So so first of all,
2: um, and not to, not to um, say anything bad about Gary Johnson, but very rarely, I think, do we hear Gary Johnson was the first politician to pull somebody into the party. You know, I mean? I know. usually it was, uh, they might be the first libertarian we voted for. But it was somebody else that pulled him into the party you know what i mean so that's interesting that he was kind of your first
0: one uh and you know, dave, dave smith though was teasing me he goes you know i used to say nope gary johns didn't bring anybody into the party and then i met you larry you're the one guy <laughs> <I don't laughs> like it's me <laughs> I'm, exactly. I'm the one guy it's true i'm the one guy who brought in it's true it's me yeah because i know i mean
2: there's a lot of people who he's the first one we voted for he's the first one i ever voted for you know what i mean um but uh but it's just interesting to hear that so and then also interesting to see that you've been on both sides of the um, of the independent, you know, cycle with Perot and Nader, um, and then even Obama. Uh, obviously, Kevin on this program uh, comes from the left side. I come from the right side. We both found libertarianism in different ways, uh, but you've you kind of straddled both of those sides throughout your life. It's pretty interesting. Now your your New York run. I know you said it was a disappointment, and obviously a lot of us were watching, mm-hmm. and hoping for better results, but you did have um, some great county-wide results, right? In
0: the out counties. Yeah, I gotta tell you what was crazy is um, in certain parts, certain counties, I got over 9%, which is huge, but not just that. I I learned a lot on how to run campaigns and and how to do things, right? And this is one of the reasons why I really think, you know, the, the gray sharp campaign would have been a good campaign, because we actually had what I think is the right plan. That's the reason why I actually even decided to to run with, with Judge Jim Gray. A, a lot of people were upset, they were like, Larry, why didn't you run with whoever? You've been a great VP. No, the, the, unless the campaign did, had the plan that I thought it should have, and it may sound like you know hubris, but doesn't matter. I, I ran the largest campaign since Gary Johnson prior to today, right, prior to this campaign. So I had the most experience. I ran alongside Trump with everybody else. I had I played this game. I knew the tactics to use and no other campaign wanted to use my tactics except judge Jim gray. He was the only one who agreed with me. That's why I ran with him. And if anyone else would have wanted to be uh, the president, me be the vice president, they wouldn't agree with my tactics. No, thank you that I, I didn't, I don't need, this is not a vanity run for me. I only want to run when I can make impact. And if, if people weren't going to do my, what I thought was the right thing, the way of doing it, it wasn't going to be any impact. So why am I going to waste my time? Right. So I, so I can have my name on a, I don't know, on a TV show or something. I already have that. I'm fine. It's the worst. So, so I don't really, I don't really care about that. But my, my, my point being, there were parts of New York state, not counties, but districts where I actually got about 26, 27% of the vote in a five way race. Right. That's a lot. And what I learned from that is those are the places I showed up in where no one else did, Right, These are parts of New York State that no one else showed up in. I did. And as a libertarian, as a relative nobody, I was able to pull 26-percent of vote in a five-person race. So I, that's what I learned when it came to running across the state.
2: Yeah. And I think
0: I, um, what you're
2: hinting at, I think, is targeted campaigning absolutely um, for the
0: presidency. Do you want to talk about that tactic and what you were thinking about? It's one of the reasons I thought about this, but I hadn't put it into play until I actually ran. I thought about this in 2016, and I was telling the Johnson campaign, this 50-state um, idea is doomed to fail. It's never going to work. It, you, you can't do this. You have to focus on certain states and try to make some impact in certain states. And I said, imagine, this is what I told the team, imagine if you won one state, just one state. That's it. You lost it, but won a state. There'd be a gold state. Every time they show an electoral map and they show that map all the goddamn time. And they show that map to be a gold state right there. Imagine be the one I don't know, New Mexico or Utah or Wyoming, insert state. I don't care which one. But if we win a state, that gold state sits there for four years and helps every down ballot candidate for the next four years and making us legitimate. That's what it does. We are players. We are real. It's a third party. No one wanted to hear me. So when I when I ran my campaign, That's how it worked for me. I live in New York City. So much stuff goes on in New York City. I can't get any press in New York City. Too much is going on. So I went up upstate New York to places that were so remote that that the local newspaper and and TV stations had two options of reporting. The cow escaped or Larry Sharp showed up. Well, the cow's going to escape next week, so we'll cover Larry Sharp. That's how that worked. Now, you might say, well, Larry, who cares? Here's why. I got a bunch of local newspapers. You might go, Larry, local newspapers, who reads those? Very few people, that's true. But if you read your local newspaper, you vote. The person who reads the local newspaper, that person votes. So while it's a small audience, it's exactly the right audience. But more important than that, what most people don't know is local newspapers have been destroyed because of conglomerate media. So what does that mean? One guy or gal who writes for the local newspaper in your town also writes for five other papers. Sometimes a different pen name, sometimes exactly the same. So if you get in one local paper, you get in five of them across the state. Well, you do that two or three times, and then the local TV station in the big city nearby picks you up, and before you know it, you're on city TV. That's how I got on TV. That's how I got so much press. I had a press reel before I got to my convention by doing this. So I literally had a press reel of me being on PBS, ABC, local Fox stations before I got to my before I got to my convention. How could they not pick me? I was the only guy who had built a team already who had already raised six figures in money and and has and, and already had a press reel. So that's how you do it. So you, you begin to build up. And once you build that up, that's when you now can go to other cities. So you begin the, the, the groundswell in local places very early on. You don't wait till you get the nomination and then decide to get in the press. You do it before you get there. Then you can win the damn thing. And by that, you've got enough momentum to where the big press people pick you up. right? I got on things like uh, PBS. I got on Kennedy. I got on Joe Rogan. I got into a bunch of big plays, Dave Rubin, because I had press. And I was getting on those things, many of them, not all of them, but before I even had the nomination. This is the way of doing things. What we should have done is literally taken... What the the judge and I called the five state plan. Now, it may not be five states, but whatever those states are, for the sake of argument, you know, Utah, Wyoming, you know, maybe Nebraska, maybe New Mexico, whatever we did very well in 2016 in. And focus on those five states for like at least two months. Focus on just those five states. And when people say, oh, you can't get national, um, yes, you can. Because if all of a sudden we're polling at, say, 15, 20% in New Mexico or whatever the state would have been, That becomes national news that we're polling so well. How do I know that? Look at that guy McMullen from Utah. He did it in 2016. That guy's been on Bill Maher three times. Why? Because he came in freaking second or third in Utah, one state. Exactly what I said McMullen did. Exactly what I said I did. And no one paid attention to me. That's why I didn't run for VP. You ask what I learned. That's what I learned. You start where no one else will be. Let that grow. That's how you get bigger and better press. Yeah. Now, yeah. if we would have tried that and it wouldn't have worked, let's say we were wrong. We and to judge were wrong and it wasn't going to work. We still would have been able to see one or two states where we had a chance of victory in. Then we would have focused all of our energy just on those one or two states. And my goal would have been to win at least one electoral vote, whatever that is, at least one. But if we'd won an actual state, even a small like Wyoming, I mean, I don't know if we could have won Wyoming, but theoretically, Wyoming, I think Wyoming's what, three or four electoral votes, whatever it is. So great. Four electoral votes. That's four votes. And it's a gold state. Now, every single other person running for the next four years is now more legitimate. Libertarians never win. What's that gold state right there? I guess we do, don't we? Right. Yeah. You guys aren't a real party. What's that gold state there? I guess we are. So I think that that was my goal for this year. We didn't get that. Maybe next time. Yeah, it was it was
2: really interesting because I know um, there was a lot of hot debate over over whether that type of strategy was good or should we be nationwide and ballot access this and ballot access that. And there was a white paper going around maybe a year before that that you probably saw. I think it was called the Blue Ocean Strategy. Yep. Evaluating. Um, Canadian politics I think and it was very similar to what you're talking about but it was more about focusing on the easiest votes to get basically the deepest votes to get Um, and and that was I really really enjoyed that read um, and I think there's a lot that we can take from it regardless of whether we end up picking five states or not there's a lot that local candidates can take from that as they run their races yeah very interesting Kevin what do you got
1: Something that you kind of glossed over, Larry, that that I want to kind of come back to because it's something that that I hear a lot, especially like now being a younger libertarian, talking to my progressive friends and some of my more conservative friends is, they'll say, oh, well, like you're a libertarian. Yeah, that Larry guy that was on Joe Rogan. (laughs) I think that that was a super huge thing that people kind of gloss over, but the impact of that, of going on and talking about libertarianism the way that you did, and kind of debating him like you did in the school choice and stuff, I think that that's a huge thing that you kind of glossed over, and you need to take more credit for that because that's something that happened years ago and people are still talking about. I still people get that,
0: recognized in the street because of it. Yep, I yeah. get recognized in New York's in New York's uh, city. I get recognized. You know, when I go upstate, all the time. Um, and let me tell you why that, how you get that. How do you get people go? How'd you know Joe Rogan? How'd you do know Joe Rogan? Here's how you get on shows like this. If you're a third party, have interesting ideas. What we don't do, what we do terribly in this party is this. Are you libertarian? I am. How do you fix this thing? Get government out of it. That's not a policy. That's rhetoric. That means nothing to anyone outside of the party. That mean, you might as well just you might as well just, you know, scream at them. There's no difference. in you just going, ah, same thing to someone outside of our party. Rhetoric, when you're a third party, it is totally unfair and totally true, always fails if you're a third party. You you have a higher bar you have to pass. It's unfair and true. You must have interesting ideas. The reason why I got on Joe Rogan wasn't because I'm super handsome. I mean, I am super handsome, but that's not the reason why I got on Joe Rogan. I got on Joe Rogan because I had ideas like, Naming rights for bridges, leasing out naming rights to raise money uh, other than taxation. Um, My K through 10 program versus K through 12 was basically privatized two years of high school, right? Regulating uh, cannabis like onions. These ideas are, are what got me on, not just government bad. Government bad is fine for libertarians and true, but it doesn't work for the average American. It doesn't get you on TV or on Joe Rogan or whatever. You have to have something interesting or nobody cares. Let's talk about um, two different things that were critical
2: in you getting some of those high vote counts uh, in outer New York there. So one was fundraising, Yep. and then two was being able to talk to folks who aren't libertarians. Yes. Uh, so start with fundraising. How were you so successful? Because 500,000, as you mentioned, I think is the is the highest non-presidential total
0: yep. that we've seen, yep. Yeah, so, um... Yeah, I mean that—that's—that's that's the issue, right? And the best part about that is, the big libertarian donors that most people go to—they um, weren't all my top donors. I got a lot of—I got a lot of my money. The, my average donation was only about eighty-five dollars. That was my average donation, but I was lucky. I was able to get some big dollars out of people uh, in New York State for governor. My my maximum is actually forty-four thousand dollars. That's how corrupt we are. Um, and I got some people who give me 20 grand, 25 grand, 15, 12 grand. I think people give me lots of money. Um, how do you do that? Let me give you a couple of things. One, ask for money. It's so simple. Ask for money. I don't have a problem asking for money. I do it almost every day on my, on my podcast. So yes, I ask for money. It's not a problem. The issue, why, the reason why people don't like asking for money is it feels like you're begging. I get it. I understand that. So don't do it that way. Anyone who's ever seen me ask for money, I do it all the time. I've raised, I've raised almost a million dollars for libertarians. About half half of that's mine. Another half is for others of the party or other parties. I raise money for people all the time. So one of the things you see me do, I never go, Todd, please, I need you. Give me money, please. I never do that. I say things like, Todd, is what I'm doing important to you? It is. That costs money, brother. You got to give me some money then. That's the style, use your own words, obviously, but it's gotta be, do you value this? If you don't value it, please don't give me money. I'm doing the wrong thing for you, you don't care about this. If you care about this, then give me money because we both care about it. I'm out here doing the deed that I have to do, you do your part, write me a check, give me a credit card, let's move forward. And that should be your style of asking for money. If more libertarians did that, we'd raise more money. But you can't do that if you don't have any policies or any ideas, or any way to move anything forward. If you're just doing the, I'm going to give people a choice. People don't want a choice. If they wanted a choice, we'd have more parties. Right. People want solutions to their problems. People want safety. People want you know, jobs. They don't care about choice. They would take a benevolent king or queen if they thought that you would give them what they want, and then, of course, you'd be their king and queen versus the other guys' king and queen. They would absolutely take it. So I think number one is to ask for money and to ask for money in a way that says, look, are we on the same page or not? That's step one. Uh, step one and two. Step three is to understand there's a difference between donors, right? If you're going for the average donor, there are two parts. There's libertarians and non-libertarians. Libertarians, generally speaking, libertarians will to be part of something big right? Because there isn't that much big going on usually because you don't have that many candidates going on. So let them know, hey, this is something big. Get on board. Come on, do this. This is often done via email or online or you know at a fundraiser. Hey, guys, get on board. Something like that. That should be your type of message to the libertarian party. We're going to achieve something great. Get on board. To non-libertarians, almost always take the niche issue, whatever the single issue voter uh, pro 2A, pro cannabis, any of those things that are in your world, go for that single issue voter and say, "Does this issue bother you?" I'm on it. Now the problem is if you have too many hardcore libertarians on your team, they may not like that. And I get it. Tell them just calm down, get the money, and we we'll do the right thing. Because sometimes you have people who go, "Yeah, you know these people, you know they hate, you know, uh, you know they hate the, they they hate, you know the 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 gun laws." But man, they're all about locking kids up in, uh, you know, immigration. So what? We're not talking about that right now. We're talking about gun laws. And the guy's got to check. Be quiet. Let's work on the gun laws. Right. And you have to make sure that that your, your team is okay with that understands up front. That everybody that comes to you, particularly the non-libertarian, is is going to not be libertarian in other ways. We're trying to build coalitions to raise money. When it comes to heavy hitter donors, the big donors in the libertarian party. If they can write you big dollars, $1,000, $5,000, $10,000, the first thing you want to do is don't tell them you can win or explain how you can win because they don't believe you. It doesn't matter if you can actually win or not. Don't tell them that. They've been burned so much, disappointed so much. Don't tell them how you're going to win. They don't want to hear it. Tell them what impact you're going to make. Uh, And please can't be give people a choice. I hear it all the time. Talk about liberty. That means nothing to a heavy hitter donor. You've gotta say things like, I'm gonna train a team. I'm gonna build a policy library. I'm gonna fight a tax code. Those are types of things that a donor goes, oh, okay, that's that's impact. I'm gonna force a runoff, right? These are things that are impactful that a big donor goes, "That okay, I'm in. I'm gonna make it to a debate stage. Um, I'm gonna buy ads on the Super Bowl. You never would, but whatever. Right, I'm gonna do something in your world that's gonna make impact. That makes a heavy hitter donor I'll write a check. So you've got to have some kind of way of having impact. Now, heavy hitter donor who's non-libertarian, it's almost always a personal issue, and you got to be prepared to accept the personal issue. I don't like, you know, um, immigration laws because my wife is an immigrant, or I don't like, um, you know, um, immigration laws because my husband is um, illegal uh, immigrant or undocumented worker in this town. So you gotta take that money and you gotta make that one of your top issues. Now, as long as that issue is a libertarian issue, you're fine. If it isn't, you gotta say no, right? But you hope that it's a libertarian issue. That person probably only cares about one thing. They're probably you know totally Democrat or Republican and everything else, but the one issue that affects them is the thing they want. This goes back to the same idea. It's okay if your donor base isn't perfect, as long as you overlap on the things that matter to them. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I know, that makes a lot of sense. When you are talking to folks in outside New York, um, outer New York, I don't know what term you guys use there, um, up north where it's super cold. <laughs> so called upstate. Talking, <laughs> upstate. <laughs> so when you're talking to upstate New Yorkers um, who tend to be conservative, is that mm-hmm. accurate or no? Okay.
0: How, Except for the cities. We have, we have some cities upstate, but none of the cities are anywhere near as big as New York City. New York City has about 8 million people in it, and the largest city we have upstate has less than half a million.
2: Okay, perfect. So when you're out there in the, uh, in the upstate conservative areas, how were you most effective campaigning? How did you feel like people took your message
0: um, from a libertarian standpoint? Yeah. You know, people thought that because I'm a city boy, I wouldn't do well upstate. But I did. And I did well, not because I, you know, put on a cowboy hat or a a cat baseball hat and said, I'm with you guys. That's not what happened. I was still the same guy. I always am. But my entire pitch was the equivalent of just do you. Right. I didn't always say those words, but that was my equivalent It's about localism. I talked about, you know, a lot of people are upset about how New York City has you know is very different than upstate New York. Well what if New York City only ran New York City? And what if your county ran your county? Would you care what happens in New York City? They'd be like, no. I'm like, yeah. People who live in Brooklyn love Brooklyn. Why don't we let them live the way they want to live in Brooklyn? And people up and say Hamilton County is one of our counties up in New York. In Hamilton County, love Hamilton County. Why don't we let them live in Hamilton County? And I bring those two up because that's the biggest dichotomy in my state. Brooklyn is our largest by population uh, county, 2.3 million. Hamilton's our smallest, (laughs) 4,800. Massive difference in population. Now, that's pretty awesome. So talk a little
2: bit about what you're doing um, now. I know you've got probably multiple podcasts going.
0: Um, What are you doing in the movement right now that people should know about? I'm doing three things. I'm doing The Sharp Way, which is the absolute coolest podcast ever to hit podcast world ever. Except maybe yours, Todd. Maybe it's <laughs> no number worry. two. <laughs> we will not. But, um, but, you know, it's pretty cool. So, <laughs> yes. Um, the, the Sharp Way actually is not a libertarian in general. It's not a libertarian podcast. It's not called The Liberty This. It's called The Sharp Way. And it's really a recruiting podcast. Uh, it's rare that I have libertarians on it. Most of the time, the people I have on are not libertarians. They're either Democrats, Republicans, uh, Independents, Greens. Literally, I have socialists and communists on it. I'm not joking. Literally, people who self-identify as Marxists or communists or socialists, whatever, I have them on. And the goal is to have a libertarian audience see the other side that they don't often see and to show that that I can have a conversation with anyone, that we can have a conversation with anyone, doesn't matter who they are. Mondays I do an Ask Me Anything for two hours. People just reach out. It's it's always done live. All my stuff's done live. And it's 7 p.m. Eastern, Monday through Friday. So two hours AMA on Monday. Um, There's there's an hour when I critique the news on Tuesday. Wednesday and Thursday I have guests. And Friday I have a comedian on. And we just talk and laugh about stuff and try to show how human I am and how human other people are. That's the goal of the show, to draw people together to do that. My other um, one is Libertarians Drinking Coffee Live. I haven't done much of that. That's a pure libertarian show. That is only libertarians going at Todd, you were on that show. And that is me talking to other libertarians and getting why they're doing things, how they're doing things. That's a pure libertarian show. That's an hour during the day, usually 3 p.m. And I haven't done it recently, but I used to do it two or three times a week. I'm going to cut back to probably one or two times a week. I usually do um, candidates, but I sometimes also do um, activists. And the third thing I'm doing is a regular terrestrial radio show out of Western New York called A Free Solution. And that's Tuesdays and Thursdays at noon Eastern time. And it's out of the area of Buffalo, Rochester area, Western New York, syndicated show. That is cool. Is that new? Uh, newer, I'd, I'd guest hosted many times and then the primary hosting wouldn't do it anymore. So they said, Larry, can you be a permanent host two times a week? I said, done. So now I host it twice a week. It's terrestrial <laughs> syndicated, it's in like three cities
1: nice that's awesome I, I didn't know about that last one I, i've seen everything else but I, I wasn't aware of the the radio show
0: well I, I haven't figured out how to stream it yet it just happened like a couple oh. of weeks ago so i gotta figure oh, okay. that soon yes right now you kind of have hey, to be Larry. in western new york to listen to it
1: oh yeah well with
0: it's a regular me. radio show it's not internet
2: <laughs> with the gubernatorial race in new york um, and we'll we'll ask you what you're planning on doing going forward. But um, talk to us a little bit just about how the different parties work in New York, because it's my understanding um, that multiple parties can endorse the same candidate. And um, there's several, several parties in New York, right? How does
0: that all work? We in New York state, there are about seven, I think, states that that have this option, but almost none do it like New York does it. New York, we have what's called fusion voting. That's the name of it. It means that any party, any any candidate can actually run on multiple lines, literally be listed on the ballot multiple times. So I could be a, a libertarian and an independent, a libertarian and a Democrat, libertarian and Republican. In fact, I can have three or four or five lines in theory if I could get them. So each party has the ability, if it wants to, to cross endorse another candidate. So I could be a libertarian, and independent, and a conservative, and a, and a working families party, and a whatever, if I'm able to get those. What winds up happening is most of these parties just puppet parties, and they cross endorse Democrat or Republican. The two exceptions are the Green Party and Libertarian Party. We actually run our own candidates. The other ones just kind of cross endorse, so we wind up having two, three, or four different uh, um, lines with the same guy on it. So it's, it's a weird, really odd way of doing things. The way that, excuse me, it used to be in New York State, the way we got ballot access was only one way. And that was if we got 50,000 votes or more on the gubernatorial line during a governor election. That's it, literally Gary Johnson could have won New York state in 2016, we would still not have ballot access. Wow. It is only the governor line on, that's it, 3,000 or more, and we had never made it in 50 years. I was the first time we made it. So we actually made it and got ballot access. And the second we got ballot access, they changed the rules, literally. <laughs> now it's 130,000 votes or 2%, whichever is higher. Of course, they were like, "Oh, oh yeah. Larry made that." Well, we can't have that. <laughs> so, uh, we can't have that. Change the rules. So, so did they? Yes. Did they let you keep it till 22? We actually have a lawsuit right now. Okay. Um, because uh, what 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 had to happen as you know, it's completely unfair, but you know they don't care, right? The We had to do that this year all of a sudden. They promised me four years, said we were just kidding, sorry, reneged on that deal, went to, and then during COVID, I the Joe Jorgensen to make those numbers. Joe Jorgensen didn't come anywhere near those numbers. I, I got more than Joe Jorgensen. Uh, right. She didn't come anywhere near those numbers in New York. Yeah. So, of course not. So, at the moment, we have a lawsuit saying they should give it to us to at least 2022. We'll see if we make it happen or not. Got it.
2: All right, well, what's next on your plate here, Larry? I know a lot of people bring you up for a lot of different things inside the party. Um, and, and if you're in a position to talk about it, great. If not, just tease us and tell us what you're thinking. No, no,
0: no, I, I, I never do that. It's not what I do. Um, I am looking hard at running for governor again. I ran once and I'm considering doing it again, but I don't know to be forward. I, I will decide and make a decision and an announcement sometime in the summer of, of of 2021, because if I run again, I have to do what I did last time. I took off. I didn't. I didn't have a paycheck for a year and a half. I ran full time, and it is my opinion that if you run in a state like New York or state uh, a statewide, if you run a statewide campaign in a state like New York or Texas or anything like that, if you're not full time, you're fooling yourself. You're fooling yourself. It is a full time. If you're running, if you're running for the president, full time job, or you are fooling yourself. So I'm not here to, if I run again, I'm going to bug people for money, for time, for energy. I'm going to bug people. I'm going to task people with a lot of work. I'm not doing that unless I can deliver some results and make some impact, right? I'm a business guy. I don't want your money unless I can give you something that you can go, you know what? Yeah, I'm glad. I think the vast majority of people who gave me money for my campaign are like, I'm glad I gave him the money. He's still rocking and rolling. He made impact and he's still there. It was worth it. And, I, and if I run again, I want to be able to deliver the same thing. Because again, it's going to be a year and a half of me not having a salary. I'm going to wind up going to debt personally, which I'm happy to do if I can make impact. So that's the issue. Do I think I can make impact or not? If I don't think I can make impact, I'm not going to run. If I think I can make impact, I will. And regardless, I will support someone else who runs if it's not me, right? I still supported Joe Jorgensen, um, even though I wasn't on a ticket. I'm, I'm still going to support them. So I will support whoever runs. But if I think I can make impact, then it will be me. If not, it'll be somebody else. If I don't make it there, people are asking, Larry, would you run for president in 2024? Very doubtful that I'd run for president in 2024. Would I take a VP slot? I would. And people ask me, why didn't I take the VP? Why didn't I take the presidential slot in 2016? Because everyone running for president had a had a bigger, in 2016, had a bigger um, platform than I had, had a bigger name than I had. They were, they had a better chance of making impact. Why wouldn't I support them? So I ran for VP. This year, uh, in 2020, why not for be president? Because I couldn't take a year and a half off again. I just couldn't do it. If I was going to run for president, I would have actually announced last year, last summer, and I would have been running for a year and a half, and I would have come to the convention with a press reel and a built team, and I would have already raised half a million dollars. That's what I would have done. I, I physically couldn't do it. I could make impact, so I didn't run. Was was I prepared to support somebody to run? I was, which is why I took the VP slot if Judge Jim Gray was gonna be the nominee because I knew him and I could have made impact. That same thing will go for 2024. The odds of me being in a position where I can take off a year and a half, slim, but maybe. But if I could make impact as a VP, would I? 100%. If I thought someone was gonna follow what I think is the only way for us to make impact in 2024, I would take a VP slot, I would.
2: Very good. And um, and touching on one thing that you mentioned about the full-time candidate, maybe the favorite podcast that I've seen of yours was the one that you did right after the election. I think there was a PowerPoint involved. Yes. And, and you were talking about, if you don't do this then don't even run Yes, hurting the party. Can you kind of give a five minute synopsis
0: of that? Because I thought it was fantastic. 100%. And, yeah. We have to stop acting like when you're running for office, you're doing the party a favor. You're not. You are hurting the party if you're not here to make some impact. You're. I know in the past, like we gotta run people. We gotta run 900 candidates. That is a terrible idea, has never worked, Is will never work, will only hurt us. It is a bad idea but I know I'm the audible. People think I'm wrong and it's fine when people run. I still support them. Even though I think they shouldn't run, I'm still going to support you. Most of the people who ask if they should run and many did this year, I said, no, and they ran anyway. And I still helped them raise money. I still put them on my show. I'm still going to support you if you run, but if you can't make impact, don't run. You are actually hurting us because you are taking money, time and energy from someone who can actually make impact. You need to be helping people who are running. You can make impact without running. I'm doing it. I've only run one time, yet somehow I keep making impact. You can do it. But Larry, I'm talking about liberty. Get a podcast. Write some, 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 some letters. Become an activist. You know, write an op-ed. There are many other ways to make impact. So here are some of the rules. Number one, if you're going to run for president of the United States in the Libertarian Party, I don't want this to be a rule because I want the delegates to so decide. But I want delegates to think about this before they decide. If you can't be a full-time candidate running for president of the United States, in my view, my opinion, you you should not. We should not vote for you, and you should not accept it. If you want to run because you want to sell a book or something, okay. But then, if you see yourself getting ready to win, and you can't be a full-time uh, um, a candidate, what the hell are you doing? Please don't take this. Say no to the nomination. I did. People wanted me to be VP. I said no, because I couldn't make impact. Say no. You're not doing people a favor. Just say no. Next, if you can't come to the convention already raising at least six figures, who are you kidding? You don't have a campaign. You're going to fall on your face. You should have six figures in your bank account, campaign bank account, before you get there. Well, Larry, I can't raise that money. Then don't run. You're not doing me a favor. Stay home. I'm okay with that. Not just that. You should have an entire team built out. I mean, at least at least five people on your team already. Larry, I don't know five people. Then you're fooling yourself. You're a crappy candidate. Don't run. You also should have a press. You should already have a press reel before you get there. You should already have been in the paper and or TV and or podcast, something, not libertarian podcast, mainstream podcasts already before you get there. Well, Larry, I can't do it. I don't have any money. Then you're not a real candidate. Don't run for president. You're not doing me a favor and you have no right to be our, our candidate. That's my personal opinion. Lots of people disagree. I still think that also goes down lower to statewide. If you're in large states, that small states change but not a same amount of money. You should have some from a press before you go to your state convention. Maybe not a press reel, I get it. You should be able to do at least, at least uh, four full days a week to be running in your state. If it's a statewide election that you can do. Now that's equivalent, right? So maybe you can do it all on the weekends. So four times eight, eight hour days, 24. If you can't put 20, 32, 32, uh, is that right? Yeah, 32 hours a week. In, into this, you know, into this campaign, what are you doing? How are you going to make it make an impact statewide? You should also be able to raise five figures, at least 10 grand, if you're going to run a statewide election. Again, large states, small states, you can modify that. But that's what you should be looking at as a delegate voting for the person. Well, Larry, you have to be principled. Of course they do. But I'm looking for principled libertarians. I can throw a rock in the convention. I'll hit six just in the bounce. There's tons of people who are principled. That's great. Be principled, of course, and have these other things. If you are running locally, you should raise at least four figures. Yes, you should raise a thousand dollars to run locally. Larry, I can't raise money. Why are you running? And at least one more person on your team, at least one more person. I go one, three, five. One more person locally, three people at least in a state, five people at least for president before you get the nomination. If you don't have that, what are you doing? And I go a thousand, ten thousand, a hundred thousand. If you don't have that, what are you doing? Full-time, four days a week, two days a week. If you can do two days a week for your local campaign, you're good. If you can't, Larry, I got two jobs. Don't run. Larry, I got three kids. Don't run until you're in the right spot to do all those things. And I think if we have better candidates with larger teams, better candidates with more support we will have a whole lot more impact in the coming years
1: yeah i agree completely to piggyback off of something that um i steal a quote from you all the time but i just want to hear hear you say it because i know that it gets muddled up but you were talking about principled libertarians one of the things that you said years and years ago that really stuck with me was that we needed to move away from the purity test and do this 80 20 the 60 40 where we're finding common ground with people. Can you kind of go into that for the audience?
0: Yes, what what I want us to think about is, you know, we should be looking at the 80-20 rule. The 80-20 rule comes out of both business and politics. In business, for those you don't know, in in business, 80% of your money will come from 20% of your customers. 80% of your problems will come from 20% of your customers, right, that's kind of how that 80-20 rule works in general. 20% of your customers will be your biggest customers, Blah, 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 blah. So imagine that. Spend 80% of your time on 20% of your customers. That rule tends to work very well in business. It's a rule of thumb, obviously. But also Ronald Reagan said it. He said, if someone agrees with you 80% of the time, they're your ally, not your enemy. And I want allies. So if people agree 80% of the time, he's my ally. I'm not going to get mad at him, right? And the worst thing is when we deal with libertarians. Have you know, if you notice? I don't debate libertarians. You've never seen me debate with well. Well, maybe like, well. Twenty sixteen, I was debating against Bill Weld. I didn't. Call, I didn't consider him a libertarian. So I don't debate libertarians. <laughs> Why? Because we're gonna agree on ninety nine percent of the stuff, and then one thing's gonna be wrong. I'm gonna act like it's the end of the world, right? Think the end of the world. Oh, you don't want to whatever destroy. Uh, you 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 don't want to destroy the IRS tomorrow. Now you're evil. I I can't vote for you. You don't wanna destroy the IRS tomorrow. Okay, can we destroy it in two weeks? No, it must be tomorrow. All right, fine, I guess I don't get your vote now. And now we attack each other and we destroy each other. Look, at City 20. it's fine. Did I agree with everything that Joe Jorgensen said? Of course not. Did I vote for her? Yes. Did I agree with everything that Gary Johnson said? Of course not. Did I vote for him? Yes. Did I support him? Yes. We should learn to support people. People got mad at me for supporting Judge Jim Gray and his negative income tax idea, which is a, a form for those who don't know, it, it's it's a form of UBI. I'm not a UBI fan. I've openly said I'm not for UBI more than once. Now, to be forward, the the negative income tax of all the UBI schemes, it's the least bad. That's true. It's the least bad of all the UBI schemes. But I'm not pro UBI. I never have been. Like, Why'd you change mind? I changed my mind. What I said was this is what Judge Jim Gray agrees with. And that's his policy. And I support him. That's what I said. And that was true. How can you support a guy who supports UBI? First off, the odds of him winning the election of a Brazilian one. So why do you care? But not just that, who's gonna ask him about UBI? Nobody but you. And if he can make impact and help everybody else, fine, we disagree on UBI but at least his UBI was the the most libertarian form of UBI. Milton Friedman talked about it, right? This is a Milton Friedman idea. So yeah, it was UBI, but it was a libertarian UBI if there's such a thing. And I never said I supported it. I said, it's his policy and I support him. And that was hundred percent true. And I stand by that. And we should start doing that. We don't We go, well, I can't stand behind that. You're not running, shut up. That person's running. Are you supporting them or not? You're not? Then say that. If you're supporting them, say you're supporting them. Do you think I support everything, everybody I support? I mean, everybody that I support, um, um, I support everything they say? Of course not. But you never made me bad them because they're still libertarian. It may not be my level of libertarianism, but it's still libertarian, and it's way better than the alternative, not even close. So what what drives me crazy is what you said, that someone says something that we don't like, and we now destroy them. Judge Jim Gray got hammered on that. Like there's no tomorrow. And it was the wrong reason to not vote for him. There were reasons to not vote for him. There absolutely were. That was not one of them. But people chose it as one. And they have an option to do so. But that's the idea of an 80-20 rule. We should have been like, you know what? He's a negative negative impact guy. Fine. It, do I think he can make impact for our party? Do I think he can still you know give us the right message? Do I think he can still do a good job for us? Eh, fine. I'm in
2: yep well very good larry i think um everybody knows where to find you but if you want to just kind of go through all the different places they can
0: find you quick sure uh, follow me on anything. all the internet things all of them <laughs> twitter youtube facebook linkedin every, all of them the sharp way and that's sharp with an e and the e stands for entertaining Well, thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate
2: it, Larry. We've always appreciated you uh, helping new folks join the party. Both Kevin and I look up to you and and just having you on the show so
0: early means a lot to us. So thank you very much. I hope you guys can get a cool bump. That'd be awesome. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Larry.